Uh, we're trying something uh, unusual today where both of us are going to talk. Um, hopefully it won't be too long and we want to, we want to kind of have it be a little bit of a conversation, you know, but we'll see, we'll see how it goes. So like, uh, like Anissa said, we are, um, starting a, a new month talking about good things. The title of this series is not everything sucks. Um, which is self-explanatory, but you know, you can take it as kind of like sarcastic, like hey, not everything sucks. Or you can say like, really not everything sucks. And so we have an opportunity um, to actually celebrate that to some extent, to think about good things. As I mentioned, uh, the two of us will sort of get more into what we think about this um, conceptually and theologically and so forth. But we actually wanted to start by sharing a couple of stories that we have about good things. So, you want to take it away? Yeah. Uh, so I thought long and hard about what story I was going to share with y'all uh, because as I sat down with this topic, uh, not everything sucks, but really with the challenge of recognizing all of the ways that I fail to see all of the good things and the blessings in my life, I realized that I would be able to describe like most moments in my life as falling into this category of overlooking good things. And so... I was sitting uh, really just Wednesday through Saturday like with this on my mind and literally yesterday all day long like sitting trying to think what's the best story I could tell you all um, that illustrates this like I want the story that I pick out of all of the like thousands that I could select to be one that's like the most heartwarming the most insightful the most vulnerable the most like utterly unique but also deeply relatable story I could pick um, and <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Paige. Um, and as I sat, just really like freaking out, being like, what story is the best story? I realized, I thought it was a bit ironic. I was actually embodying one of the major hindrances in my own life to experiencing goodness, which is this, it's not a conscious thing, but it's a sense that I often have that unless, um, unless like I am achieving perfection or unless I'm like the very best at something, then whatever it is that I'm experiencing that in that moment or who I am in that moment is verging on worthless or at least certainly like not worthy of remark. Uh, and as I was sitting with this, um, I actually went out over to a friend's house last night and we were um, supposed to be a game night, but mostly we were just sitting around chatting and I got, I was like really anxious. It was like 11 PM and I hadn't written this story yet. Um, not because I hadn't tried, but like I was just, it was so, you know, I didn't pick the best one. Um, so I got home last night at like 11.30 and I was like irritated that I hadn't done it yet and I was irritated that I had to leave this party. And what I um, like started to think in that moment is this is, like, this is the pattern that keeps me so often in life from being in that present moment is like just pick something and like do it, right? <laughs> and um, be present to the goodness that's uh, there in every moment. And so I was thinking, okay, what story, what story am I gonna pick? And I started, uh, for some reason, this thing that I've been doing um, since my freshman year in college came to mind. Uh, so I've had, I got a MacBook my freshman year of college and um, I have, as you know, MacBooks do, like photo booth on that, like the application photo booth. And truthfully, I feel really self-conscious about like how I look most of the time, just in my daily life. Uh, and I also spend a lot of time in front of my computer and so I'm, I get into this habit of whenever I feel like is my hair out of place or like do I have food in my teeth or like are my eyes too like dark and saggy from like being tired 
I open up Photo Booth on my computer and I like use it like a mirror to assure myself. And, and usually I'm doing this in the library, so like nobody's really looking at me, but <laughs> nevertheless, I have this like deep uh, self-consciousness. So I like have to open up Photo Booth and like look at myself. Um, and so what this has resulted in is I have 10 years, like literally 10 years worth of photos of my face, basically making the same facial expression over the past 10 years on my computer. Um, and just all, and literally libraries all over the world. Um, and which, that certainly speaks to my privilege, but in any case, um, yeah, so the irony of these photos is that I take them, um, like in moments of extreme self-consciousness and like self-critique and like lack of self-worth because I'm like, I'm so messed up right now, like I can't be appearing in a library. Um, and, but there's also this other thing that I sometimes do with these photos and I don't do it on purpose, uh, but like sometimes I go through them and like really fast, I just hold the left key and like watch my face like get 10 years younger. Um, and like I'll stop on certain ones and I, I like see myself in that moment, like this 21 year old Virginia, um, I had like a really short haircut at that time and I was, uh, there's one in particular where I was doing my homework for the first time at a wine bar because I was 21 and I could go to a wine bar. Um, and like the joy, and that's just a silly thing, but like the joy and like the hopefulness and like I can think back on those moments and like how I had these friends in my life and I still have these friends, but like I was funny then. And like I, looking at that photo, I'm like, oh, I still am funny sometimes. And, um, <laughs> and I can look back on these past versions of myself and like moments when I was not feeling good at myself and like see, oh yeah, there was some goodness there. Um, and I'm not 100% sure what this means, but what I am taking from it for myself and want to share with y'all is that I think one of the major um, hindrances that a lot of us face when to like experiencing goodness in the world actually starts with a, a struggle that we have to experience our own goodness and to have um, self-compassion and like it's a buzzword but really self-worth and there's something about having some degree of distance from oneself be it a past self or even I think this is one of the most powerful things that we can do um, seeing ourselves like through the eyes of a friend and in those moments we can uh, experience that that goodness that we are and really the goodness that God has created us to be to put it in a theological register and that is the like beginning of what it is to be able to see and embody good things in the world so that's my story I wanted to share. <laughs> Thank you. Um, my story is often, so many of my stories are, is about my family. And uh, as you, many of you know, I, I fly home just about twice a year to see them. And for the last 10 years I've been doing this, um, I've, most of it I've stayed at my brother's house. And my brother and my parents lived together. Uh, my parents actually lived in his home. And we were all there, you know, uh, summer, Christmas time, one big, slightly bored, a little annoyed family. But my brother got married last year. And uh, because of that, my parents uh, moved out, and they moved out to a like a little senior living one bedroom apartment. And you know, when that happened, I was like, "Oh, that's you know unfortunate." At least I have a guest room at my brother's house. Turns out that my brother was like, "You can't stay here either." <laughs> Woo! <laughs> I mean, we're so me and my brother are like pretty close, and I was very pissed and upset about this. I felt betrayed. I won't get too into all the reasons why. I don't really want to, on record, 
talk bad about my sister-in-law or anything like that. But you know, it's a complicated <laughs> thing. And um, so this now meant that I would have to stay with my parents in their, again, little one bedroom apartment. Now, if you've ever lived with older people, you know that uh, their ways are not our ways. And uh, there's often a lot of potential for friction. And particularly for Korean people, if you don't know these things, you're going to get a little bit of a lesson in old Korean people. One is, is that Korean people do not use like household appliances for anything or like, like a dishwasher. I've never seen one Korean home ever actually use a dishwasher to wash dishes. It is a glorified dish rack. It is a dish rack with a door, right? That sort of thing. This also means that AC, you're not getting AC in a Korean home. Uh, which is exacerbated by the fact that Koreans believe in this thing called fan death. If you, does anybody know what fan death is? Yeah. Yes? It's true, it's a real thing. Koreans believe that if you sleep in a room, in an enclosed room with a fan on, you will die. <laughs> it's not an exaggeration, you will die. And so using even a fan in this um, apartment with no AC was, was a no-no for, for my dad. He, he constantly would come and just turn it off without a word, just walk away. <laughs> so I'm in my parents' place, it's August, I'm sweating my ass off, I'm trying to sleep on this uncomfortable sofa. My parents also have this thing, this, old, this Korean church thing of waking up for prayer at dawn, which means I get a nice 4 a.m. wake up call as well every morning. And we are, again, just all, always together in this one the, the bedroom is really just a bed, so we're just always in the living room. Uh, I can't escape them, they're within three feet of me. It's way too easy for my mom to be like, come here, can you translate this thing for me into English? I promise it'll be quick. Of course, it takes five hours. So it's always this constant uh, interaction. So the first time, first few times I was there, I was, you know, very filled with dread. I was uh, very annoyed. But the last time, as I was coming home, I did feel and I'd been there for like eight days in a row with them, and I felt this real palpable sense of, of not wanting that time to end, right? Sort of missing it as I was um, landing back in Chicago. I'd spent essentially like 80% of my waking time with my parents, uh, eating or just doing nothing or chatting about you know, our extended family or ministry life, because my parents are both pastors, or of course why, I'm not married yet, which they like to, to talk about as well. Um, and you know, I thought like back when we were in the big house together, um, it was easy for all of us to do our own thing. I actually spent an inordinate amount of time watching Animal Planet when I was <laughs> back home because my brother has cable and I was very excited about that. Um, and I actually didn't spend much time with my parents at all, even though we were all together under the same roof. And now I'm, I'm thinking of course about as we all are getting older, relatively how little I'll see them for the rest of my life, right? Like 80% of my time in California is really like 1% of my entire life in so many ways. And what a good thing it is that uh, I'm stuck with them when I'm back home. That what a good thing it is that I'm forced to be there in such close proximity. Um, so as you can see, uh, we're talking about uh, good things but we want to emphasize it's not necessarily like, you know, a lot of churches, prosperity gospel kind of bullshit, right? Like how you can get good things in your life if you do X, Y, Z, right? It's not even really a question of like if God can give you good things, right? It's a, 
that's a, another sort of separate theological topic about God's agency in the world. The idea is that not the idea of not everything sucks is is a wager that there actually are good things for all of us in our lives that if we just kind of looked, um, we could see them, right? And really the failure on our part is, is not looking, is also not recognizing and not talking about them, not expressing them. Um, you know, we talk about community as a place for people to truly share their sorrows, but it's also and joys, right? And joys is not just 50%, I would say probably more than that, right? We are here together to share in sorrow and joy. And as we uh, were sort of thinking about why we wanted to talk about this, you know, obviously it's Thanksgiving, but we had this sense that uh, our culture right now is quite enamored with complaints and, and critique. And so, I mean, I really should delete Twitter. It probably is a skewed version of the world, but uh, we also, I think, sense this when we get together with our friends a lot. Uh, think about how often the conversations are people being like, these are really cool things happening versus like, shit, you know, this person, this date I went on was terrible. I can't believe this coworker I have and that sort of thing, right? And while complaint and critique are not categorically bad, right? Like progress is often pushed by that sort of agitation. If we also don't provide space for reflection and articulation of gratitude and thanks, I think we actually really risk warping the very way we see the world. We, we will warp our minds, our spirits in such a way that we'll only be able to see the bad things, right? This story I told about my parents, the part I didn't include was like when I was uh, in the group chats with my friends and they were asking me how was my trip or whatever, it was all jokes about how awful it was with them, right? I'm like, oh, it's so hot, all these things, and it's, you know, laughs and laughs, but truly if I didn't actually uh, have a, some reflection about that time, what would happen is my memory would become, begin to change the actual experience itself such that it would end up only being bad, right? There's a way that uh, looking through the world through that sort of lens, not just prevents us from being grateful, but will actually change the experiences we have uh, retroactively, and also I think in the moment. It is um, even more scary when we think about the idea that complaining or critiquing things, uh, when, it becomes to, when it becomes so pervasive, it actually, will become the only way that we can validate experiences as well, if that makes sense, right? Like, we have an experience, um, and it doesn't really stick with us or become meaningful to us unless we have an opportunity to hate on it somewhat, right? So it's not just like, again, hey, it's not a good idea to like say bad things about stuff. It's like, it will really change the way that we experience the world. And so to think in terms of good things is a way to sort of changed our filters, it's to change our, our spiritual reality. Um, there's a verse in the Bible that I heard a lot when I was young. It says, this is in Thessalonians, First Thessalonians. In a letter, Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Right, and this is at the end of the letter in Thessalonians, which means that a lot of people think this is, um, was, were words in a liturgy in the early church, right? So that would mean just as we uh, do the Lord's Prayer here or in our welcome tables we have a liturgy we read together, these would be words that this community would say continually together all the time. Give thanks, rejoice always, right? A reminder constantly for us to stay in that mindset. And I think at a certain point in my life I would have taken that verse to mean something like, always be happy uh, no matter what's happening because that's God's will. 
So even bad things are God's will. Be happy no matter what. It's debatable whether or not Paul intended that way. I think that's a question theologians can argue about. But as I reread it today, I take that verse to mean something more like, there's always something in your life worth giving thanks for and rejoicing over. Which can sound like a watered-down version of the previous idea, but really I think is an incredibly provocative and difficult statement, right? To me, Christianity has a core challenge, which is, you know, like we talked about courage a couple weeks ago, we said there's a difference between doing courageous things once in a while and living your life courageously. There's a difference between giving thanks once in a while and living a life of thanksgiving, right? Of being somebody, of being, of being a being of gratitude, so to speak. And so the challenge, I think, in Christianity is to say, do you see your life as a gift? Do you have a sense of gratitude for being here, for being born, for existing? And, you know, quite frankly, I would say that that's not a feeling I've always had in my life or even have all the time now, right? It's an ambivalence. It's a downright hostile feeling sometimes, like a sense that like life itself is, you could take it or leave it in some ways, right? Do you have a sense of gratitude that you are here, right? I think that is a Christian idea that's really important and one that, is thrown to us as a challenge in some ways as we think about the nature of good things. I'm gonna share some reflections now. I'm also noticing that on this timer, we're at like 16 minutes, but I'm just gonna share my reflections anyway, noting that for um, myself. Anyways, um, so as I was approaching this topic theologically, like what is theologically at stake in, um, in us seeing good things in our life. Uh, and what I recalled was um, a conversation that I was having with one of my friends a few weeks ago. He's a Muslim man, and we were discussing like our, our faith traditions. And in uh, him, he, he grew up Christian, he's Muslim now. But in any case, um, he, was, he said to me that he thinks the core idea in Christianity um, and like the one non-negotiable that everybody who's a Christian like agrees on is this, um, Jesus died on the cross to redeem our sins. And I was like shook by this, uh, I, I, <laughs> like the youth um, say, but I, I was, I, I, re I really shouldn't have been um, because it's true, like this idea that Jesus is on the, the cross and like suffering is like the number one image in a lot of Christian spaces. Um, that's true. I, I mean, I can think of like all of the, the hymns about, you know, Jesus's like blood being, you know, on the cross and um, cruc crucifixes in certain churches where like Jesus's like body is up there and like sometimes there's like blood painted on him and, and all of this or like pastors who talk a lot about Jesus's like crucifixion and like that image really, really is uh, forefronted in a lot of places. Um, but truthfully for me, I, you know, am a Christian pastor and I'm doing this, but that's really not the um, image of Christianity that's forefronted for me. Um, and it's not the one that I try to grow my theology from. It's not the one that I think is uh, life-giving or in many ways like worthwhile. Uh, it, it's worthwhile, but it, it, I think it can, has this danger of us missing the rest of the story of Jesus's life. Like it, he's living for so long with um, his friends. He's reaching out to the marginalized. All of this happens before his death and then really extremely crucially after the death, like how does the story end? It ends in resurrection 
and an ultimate like triumph over suffering. There's this, it, the story doesn't end with suffering, but it ends with the transformation of suffering into um, new life, new hope, uh, and that I think is really like what the, where we are um, as Christians called to have our eyes at all times is toward um, God's presence on earth before death, God's presence on earth in death, and then especially God's presence overcoming death and suffering. Uh, and so when he said that, I was just like deeply, um, deeply bothered. And I remembered also, so this past, well, I didn't remember, but this past week, uh, one of the greatest uh, living theologians uh, by the name of Emily Towns was at the University of Chicago. And she is a womanist theologian, uh, extremely briefly. Uh, womanist theology is uh, a strand of contemporary theology that is for and by black women. It centers uh, a feminist approach as well as a um, anti-racist approach and bringing those two perspectives and saying, how does the Christian tradition speak um, to these experiences that are very real of uh, marginaliz marginalization? And uh, many womenist theologians, uh, including Towns, uh, argue that when Christians become overly focused on this image of Jesus's suffering, uh, they fall into a trap that is often uh, referred to as redemptive suffering. This idea that is present in a lot of places that the more that human beings suffer, somehow that uh, becomes a penance that God accepts, that therefore the punishment that we are due for our sin in this life, um, our punishment is less after death. That's like this basic idea of redemptive suffering, and many women as theologians, as well as other theologians, but especially womanists, have some of the best uh, critiques of this way of thinking and saying that that just can perpetuate and even um, justify ongoing systems of violence and harm in the world. It can say uh, to women of color, to people of color, to women, to LGBTQI people, the differently abled, that um, there's something good in that suffering itself and that that can then become an excuse for, especially, and this is the real violence of it, but for privileged people to not uh, join in the uh, fight to overcome that suffering, but instead to just say like, oh, look at that suffering as like a lesson for us. And it becomes, a, it's, it's an extremely problematic way of being. And I think it's so deeply tied up to this like obsession that Christians can sometimes have with suffering itself um, and thinking that there's value in suffering itself. And I think it's a failure of, um, of our ability to do theology well, uh, that we're forgetting this whole story. And so Towns draws this really important distinction between suffering and pain. And she's drawing, I just have to mention because I love her, but she's drawing on Audre Lorde here. Uh, Audre Lorde's an amazing um, black lesbian poet. And uh, Towns draws on this distinction between um, suffering and pain and says that suffering, and I'm just going to quote it, is unscrutinized and unmetabolized pain. Uh, while in contrast, pain is a hurt that has been recognized and named, and then um, in that recognition and naming, a path for transformation and healing is opened up. And so on this view, suffering um, is this frozen and passive, somewhat nihilistic perception that follows in and glorifies misery. It stays at the, at the, the second of Jesus on the cross. Um, and for towns, though, staying in that perspective is not only uh, painful and unpleasant, but it's also sin, because the intuition of the Christian faith that we have to go there is uh, that Jesus' resurrection, the end of the story, 
says no to suffering as the end of the story, and it says yes to a path of transformation. And so the good news of Christ's experience um, on earth, yes, the cross is a part of it, but it's only a part of it. It's only the beginning of the story. Uh, and so I think what, like our spiritual work um, as Christians, as human beings living in this time, is for us to recognize the ways that uh, sometimes our suffering, we don't want to recognize it. We can just like sit in it and either like, it can feel kind of, I don't want to, there's this dumb thing uh, that was coming up in the book that some people like it hurts in a good kind of way. And I don't even think it's that. It's just that we can like get used to the hurt or the hurt can like feel so justified or we can like have a hopelessness that the, the hurt can be transformed and we sit in the suffering and we're missing um, really our duty, our calling, and like our hope of liberation of saying, the reason that I'm suffering is the good that I am meant to have, the good that all human beings are meant to have is being obstructed and um, invisibilized by these forces. And we have to like look at those, some ways like a doctor or something, and, act, and like find a path of transformation to like uncover the good. And that's where we're always trying to go as Christians. Um, I think that's really important. There's one final point that I wanted to make. Um, and I think this actually has a lot to do with Jesus. And I think it's a helpful way we can understand uh, this word that comes up in theology a lot, this word incarnation. Uh, the basic idea is that God showed up in this world in Jesus's body and his very human body and in his life. And this idea is probably, it's not mainstream in Christianity, but it is one that speaks to me. And I think it's a place that we could all be striving towards here is that this incarnation um, that Jesus was able to do was because he, uh, as a human being, was so able to um, connect with the good in the world in every moment, even in really difficult and painful moments, Jesus could say, you know, there's still goodness here and perform a miracle, sometimes a miracle as simple as inviting somebody to dinner who like is a marginalized person, sometimes truly healing people. And in that commitment to the good, in that embodiment of the good, in that um, like unbreakable hope and trust in the goodness of creation, God showed up in the world in him. And I would say that that is also what we, as contemporary Christian beings, or human beings are called to do too, is to um, be identifying the goods in this world, and it's not always gonna be easy, and it's not always gonna be just like smooth sailing, but like it's up to us to see it and like think it beautiful and love it, and then try and like grow those seeds further. And that's how um, I think salvation comes in this life. I think that's the intuition of Jesus Christ, and um, it does give me great hope. And uh, yeah, I, that's what I think we're doing here. So yeah, we have absolutely no time for any kind of conversation or back and forth as we had hoped. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Because we do have other guests we need, we need to give up. We just end by saying that, uh, so again, we are going to spend this month reflecting more on the good things and how not everything sucks. Um, I would urge you, uh, you know, one thing that inspired this was Liz Hamilton does this thing where she tweets every day, every day, right? Yeah. Like good things on Twitter. And it's, sometimes <laughs> it's like a big thing, but often it's like the most mundane thing too, right? Like something yeah. she ate or a plant or something. I'm also always inspired by um, the Jewish tradition and the ways in which so much of their rituals are, are centered around reminding us to be thankful, 
right? There's a reason why, you know, if you read the Old Testament, there's all these like, put this here and wear this kind of thing here. It's like, you see that, you're reminded. So I'd urge you, if you can this month, think about what ways that you can remind yourself to try to see from the perspective of good things. Amen. Amen.